Well, it's a happy Palm Sunday, and uh, Palm Sunday is also, you might call it, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and it was a public declaration. It was really the uh, first and most prominent and most powerful and most um, in-your-face public announcement that Jesus uh, is king. Okay, to Jerusalem, to the world, to everyone that, that was uh, present, it was a public declaration, Jesus is king. And uh, we as Christians, okay, when we say that we're Christians, what we're saying is that I uh, have put my faith in the, the reality that Jesus is king. He's king of uh, the, the world, he's king of the universe, he's king of kings, he's king of eternity, he's, and he's most importantly, in one sense, king of my life. Because he can be king of all those things. If he's not king of my life, then, then that is actually a terrifying thought, that he would be king over everything, and yet I would uh, refuse to give him uh, the most important thing to me, which is my heart, my soul, my life. Um, but the thing that uh, we have to understand is that as Christians, um, we declare that, we believe that, we, uh, we receive Jesus as our king, and that sounds a little bit subjective, like... Uh, it, it's almost like it's okay that we believe that he's king. Um, you can believe that uh, there's something else that is ruling, that is in authority, that is most powerful or, or most important. Uh, we believe it's Jesus, and if you believe it's something else, then that's kind of a, a difference of agreement uh, or disagreement. But the, the reality is that it's not just that we believe it for ourselves subjectively. We believe it objectively, that it is absolute. Jesus is not just king of my life because I want him to be. He's not just king of the world or king of the universe because I, I hope that he is. He is objectively, absolutely, um, completely, uh, he's king of all. And so what we're doing is basically three things. One is we're receiving that by faith that Jesus is my king. I'm, I'm believing that by faith. I'm receiving that. It changes me. It, it makes me a new creature. Um, that is made in his image, that now is transformed back into a redemptive state, which means that I have a right relationship with God. Then on Sunday morning, what we do is we proclaim it, we celebrate it, right? We celebrate the fact that Jesus is king. We make it known by our worship. We make it known by preaching the word. We make it known through prayer, through giving, through serving, through fellowship uh, together. All these things are part of our celebration of that reality. And also, the, the flip side of that coin is it is a proclamation to the world that as we celebrate it, we're telling the world that this is reality, this is truth, and you're welcome and you're invited to come into this worship and experience it for yourself. We're also going to proclaim it across the airwaves, across the internet, and make it available to anyone and everyone as much as we possibly can, because... The, the message of Jesus as king is not just important for us, it's important for the world, everybody, everywhere at all times. And so what the triumphal entry does, it, it helps us to kind of grasp. So every year on this uh, Sunday, okay, the Sunday before Easter, we, we have to pay particular attention to what is the message about Jesus being the king? What does that mean? What's it about? How do we how do we understand it for ourselves, and how do we proclaim it to others? And so, if you would, we're going to dive into that. Let's pick up uh, Luke chapter 19, and starting in verse 28, and we're going to read about the triumphal entry. 
Luke 19, 28, and standing as we read God's word this morning. And it says this, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, whenever you go to Jerusalem, you always go up, not because it's higher elevation than everywhere else. Um, Even though it is on a hill, it's because it is holy. So you always go up to Jerusalem no matter what direction you're coming from. And then coming near to uh, Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, remember, uh, he has 12 apostles, but he has literally like thousands of disciples, people that would follow him and pay attention to his teaching and hear uh, his words and and see his miracles. So it's it's a huge crowd of people, and they're proclaiming and, and worshiping. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And Father, we thank you for your word uh, today as we celebrate uh, the, the news, the message, the reality, the truth, Lord, that you are king. What an honor it is to know that. What an honor it is to receive it, to believe it, to be changed by that truth, that reality, Lord, it... Um, it, it impacts and affects every aspect of, of who we are, how we live, how we function in the world. Um, Lord, we pray that you would rule uh, first and foremost our lives, that you would guide, lead, direct us, help us, uh, strengthen us, encourage us, rebuke us where we need it, um, show us, Lord, the truth, open your word to us. Um, Lord, and, and through us, Lord, we also uh, ask and, and uh, are, are privilege, Lord, to be able to speak the truth to others, to, to model, to bear light, to bear truth, to witness, uh, proclaim that you are king. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use um, the proclamation and the testimony of your word uh, to make yourself known, to make your, your glory known, to make your love and your power, um, the forgiveness that we can find in you. Uh, the redemption, the changing, Lord, that is, is found in you, Lord, help us to make that known. Um, and we pray that your kingship, your lordship, your rule, um, Lord, would be received across the nation, across the world, um, and that you would receive the glory that you're due. Lord, we thank you for this song. It reminds us, Lord, even when um, we're, we're in fear or doubt or pain or suffering or difficulty or whatever we're facing, um, you're still worthy. Um, we're, we're praising you, God, because you're, you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our, our obedience. You're worthy of, uh, of our service, Lord. You're worthy of our lives. And, and we thank you that uh, nothing else in this world 
is worthy. It's you. And so help us to live in such a way, Lord, that we would live worthy because you're worthy. Lord, we thank you for your glory, your power, and all that you're going to do, Lord, through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me just give you a little bit of a a rundown of the week, okay? This is the beginning of Easter week, and and you all probably know, um, you know, the events that follow, but it's kicked off by the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem proclaiming, the crowd is proclaiming uh, that he is king. That's that's a very important issue because it, it, it catalyzes the events that follow, okay? But he comes in, proclaims this, some accept it, some reject it. Um, Monday, okay, after the triumphal entry, he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he runs out the the people exchanging money and and all the things that they're crowding, you know, making it a marketplace. He cleanses the temple on Monday. Uh, On Tuesday, he rebukes the Pharisees. Last week, we talked about the the sermon uh, or the uh, Olivet Discourse where he gives us the the sense of the end times and understanding of his return and all those different things, the destruction of Jerusalem and and all that. Well, that follows uh, when Jesus has rebuked the the Pharisees and and called them out for being hypocrites and, and snakes and a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs and blind guides and all the rest of that. Then after that, he goes across the Kidron Valley, just a, a little walk away, um, and he gives them the Olivet Discourse and, and shares with the disciples all the things that are going to happen in the end times. Wednesday, uh, we have no information about anything that happens on Wednesday, um, so apparently there's some preparation being done. Maybe um, he and the disciples go swimming. We don't really know. It's just a, a day off for, for them. Thursday... Um, they have the Last Supper, okay? And so he gathers his disciples. He gives them the mandate uh, to love one another. And this is where Jesus, he uh, strips down to a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says, as I have done, do to each other, right? As I'm serving, I'm, I'm the Lord and I'm the master. You call me Lord and teacher. He says, but do as I do, which is I serve. And so that's why we call Thursday, Monday, Thursday, it refers to the mandate to love one another, and then that's where we receive the Lord's Supper uh, or the communion, where he gives the bread and the, and, the, and the cup, basically saying, this is my blood, this is my body, and it's a, always to be a perpetual reminder of his sacrifice, but also of a new covenant in his life, in his body and blood. Then Thursday night, he's arrested, and he's taken away. Friday morning, he's crucified. And so what happens is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he's in the tomb. So what we understand is that according to Scripture, according to their ancient ways of understanding, any part of a day is a day. So when they say Jesus is in the tomb three days, we think of three 24-hour periods. That's not how they considered a day. They considered any part of a day a day. And so he's in the tomb on Friday afternoon. Um, He's in the tomb Saturday. He's in the tomb Sunday morning. They say three days. And then he rises on Saturday, or on Sunday, sorry, Sunday morning, and he defeats death. And next week on Easter Sunday, we're going to dive into all the the meaning and understanding of what it means for Jesus to conquer death and then to bring you and me into that victory. That's going to be good, I hope. (laughs) Here's the, the whole thing. It begins with this understanding. Jesus rose from the dead by his own power and authority. You realize that? 
he, he said, I have the power to give my life, to lay it down. I have the authority to pick it back up again. And that's what he does on Easter Sunday. But it all began on this, this Sunday, Palm Sunday, when he declares that he is king. And this is exactly what's happening when he uh, rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. Now, let's just look at this a little bit. Um, he tells his disciples to go and find uh, this colt. And, uh, and here's what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to go into Bethphage, and they're going to find this colt and, and all these things. And so he begins to say, okay, you're going to go, you're going to see this, and when they ask you, what, why are you doing that, you're going to say the Lord needs it, and they're going to let you have it, and then you're going to bring it to me, and I'm going to ride on it into Jerusalem. Now, what you try to grasp is one of two things. Either Jesus um, for, uh, knew that this was going to happen, which is quite possible, right? Jesus is Jesus. He, he knows things. He understands things. He can see right into your heart and know exactly what you're thinking, what you're feeling, who you are, where you come from, what your name is, everything about you, okay? He's got all that knowledge. He knows the future. He knows the past. He knows every element of, of the present. So he could have uh, predicted this or seen it and said, this is what's going to happen. Or he foreplanned it meaning that he had arranged with uh, some disciples that he had in Bethphage to have the colt ready, and he had told them, my disciples are going to come and get the colt, and they're, you're going to say, why are you doing that? And they're going to say, the Lord needs it, and you're going to let them have it, and it's going to come, and I'm going to use it for this very particular purpose. Either way, doesn't necessarily matter. It's not a matter of whether he knew or planned. It's a matter of being foreordained. God had determined that he was going to announce in this event the reality of Jesus as king. And so what happens with this colt? A colt um, is a young donkey, and, and what it is in this case is a donkey that has never been ridden. Um, it's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.9. You can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it to you. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in ancient culture and understanding, and particularly in Jewish understanding, um, the announcement of a king would often be in reference to this type of event where, where a king would be placed on a, an animal, usually the previous king's horse or, or donkey or mule or something, and then paraded through the streets and announcing, here's the king, celebrate with us, he's the king. And so the most prominent uh, event that we see in the Old Testament about this is when David makes his son Solomon king after him. Because there were, was like a conspiracy for his other older sons. Solomon's not the oldest son. Other older sons to take the throne, they're trying to you know, jockey their way into power. Uh, David is kind of declining in health, and, and so they're trying to get in there and sneak their way into the kingship. Uh, and then what happens is that uh, David gets word of this, gets, uh, gets an understanding that this is going on, and he says, no, Solomon is supposed to be king. He's the one that God has anointed. He's the one that we've chosen, that God has chosen. And so they place Solomon on uh, David's mule, and they parade him through the city and say he is the king. Now, why is it important that Solomon rides a mule and not a horse or, or like a war horse? Because there would be gen generals or, or military leaders who would ride into cities on 
they're, they're stallions, and they're like, we, we are conquerors. But he's riding on a mule, or in Jesus' case, a colt, because he's a king of peace. And Solomon was a peaceful king. David was a warrior king. Solomon was a king that brought a lot of peace into um, Jerusalem, into Israel. And Jesus is going to follow that model. He's going to ride on a colt because he's not declaring war. He's declaring peace. Now, the other part of that is that this is a colt that has never been ridden, which means that it is a sacred task. It's a holy purpose. Holy means set apart by God for God. So this is not like any king that's ever followed or any king that's ever come before. This is a very unique case where Jesus is declaring that he is not just a king like the kings of old. He is a unique set apart by God for God's purpose for all time. The one that was prophesied who would be king forever, he's that king. He's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Savior, he's the Lord, he's the one that all of Scripture has been predicting, and now here he is, and he's coming to fulfill all these things. Now, it says something interesting, okay, when it, when it talks about this, it says that they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Have you heard that term before or those words? Do they sound familiar to you? Just a few months ago, we were in Christmas time. I know it seems like an eternity ago. And during Christmas, we, we always uh, go back and read the story in Luke about the uh, angels and they're declaring the birth of Christ to the shepherds. And, and what do they say? Glory to God in the highest. And peace, what? On earth. Right? peace on earth. But what did we just hear in the triumphal entry? Did you catch the, the little difference? Let's go back and see it again. Glory to God in the highest. Yeah, that's there. Peace in heaven. And here's the, the thing that is important. Little differences um, give you a lot of, of information. It's a very important point. If if there's a little change, just one word, then there's a reason for the change in that word. So when they say peace in heaven instead of peace on earth, they actually are, are really pointing to something that's very important. And here's the reality. When Jesus was born, God declared peace on earth because their Savior is in the world. John, the Gospel of John declares that Jesus came into the world, but the world did not receive him. That which he created did not accept him. He came to bring peace to the earth, but the earth rejected him. And so what prophecy tells us is that uh, the world will never experience peace until Jesus comes to rule it physically, personally, in his second coming. But there is peace that we can have in heaven, meaning that you can have a personal relationship with God, and you can have peace with the Lord, your, your spirit can be at peace, that you can have comfort, confidence, joy, you can have absolute rest in the reality that God has come to make you his child, to offer you promises, and to fulfill those promises that you have received by simple faith, and that he will fulfill by his strength 
his power, his authority, because he's God, and if he says something is true and will happen, then it will absolutely be true and happen. So you have peace in heaven, but you don't have peace on earth. Now, let me just ask you, is that sound true to your experience? Let's look at the last couple thousand years since Jesus. Has there been peace on earth? Has there been a growing peace in earth? Or is it more growing into turmoil and darkness and division and pain and suffering? And here we are 2,000 years later, and we got all this technology and knowledge and medical know-how and scientific insight and all the rest of it. Technology has just exploded in, in the last 50 years, especially. Knowledge has exponentially exploded in the sense of the, the ability to, to have knowledge, and yet are we, in a sense, any better off? Are we more peaceful? Are we growing into a utopia? Or does it continue to spin almost like it's spinning out of control more and more and more? And, and what the, the Bible clearly prophesies and tells us is that that's going to be the case, guys. It's, that's going to be how it is until Jesus returns. In fact, we looked at last week, the Olivet Discourse, we know that not only is it going to continue that way, it's going to exponentially continue in that last seven years. It'll be this little period of like a breathing room, and then boom, it's all going to, in a way, go to hell in a handbasket, like literally. And then Jesus is going to come, and he's going to, and then we'll have peace. But in the meantime, you have peace with the Lord, because he's king. He's allowed and made that possible. Now, you think about this term king, um, we don't necessarily use that term very much. We talk about Jesus, uh, number one, as Christ, right? In fact, that's his nickname, Jesus Christ, and and we might uh, interchange that Jesus and Christ as if Christ is his name. Um, We say he's Lord, we say he's Savior, um, but we don't often really refer to him as king. Now, here's the thing. I don't know why we don't use the term king uh, uh, any more than we do. Uh, we, we could and we should. Um, but the reality is that Christ means king. Um, Christ is the same word as Messiah. Messiah in the Old Testament is transliterated. Um, it's the same thing as Christ transliterated. Transliteration means that they didn't translate it. They just took the word in Hebrew, they moved it into English, and so it's Mishak in, in Hebrew which means Messiah, which, or transliterated Messiah. Christos in Greek is transliterated Christ. Somebody's phone's ringing. Go ahead and answer that or take it outside. <laughs> so what happens, though, is that that word means anointed one. If you were trans, to translate it in either Hebrew or Greek, it would mean anointed one. And anointed one means king. There were two offices in the Old Testament that were anointed. One was priest, okay, and the other one was king. And in this case, it's king, 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 king all the way through. Peter, he declares this. And so what happens, um, Jesus takes his disciples aside and he asks them, who do people say that I am? The Caesarea Philippi, okay. Uh, it's, it's at this place, this real creepy, weird place that's a, a pagan area, which is uh, called the Gates of Hell. Um, it was this this. I don't know, cave with a, uh, uh, some kind of an underground uh, 
stream or something where it was seemed like an abyss because they would send a line down this thing and it would never run out of line. Like it would just like keep going and going and going forever. They thought it was the entrance to Hades. Okay, and so Jesus is with his disciples in this area, and he says, uh, who do people say that I am? And they say, um, we, we hear rumors that people think that you're like John the Baptist resurrected, like John the Baptist got his head cut off, and uh, people think that maybe um, that why you're so you know, powerful to do miracles and all this stuff is because you're the resurrected John the Baptist, even though Jesus and John the Baptist's ministries uh, coincided, so it didn't really make a lot of sense, but some people didn't know. They'd never seen John the Baptist or Jesus. They just heard rumors, so maybe they're saying that. Uh, some people say, you're Elijah, come back. Some people say, you're the, the prophet that Moses uh, talked about, which is true. He, he was that, the fulfillment of that. Um, and he says, okay, what about you? Who do you say that I am? You remember what Peter says? We can turn to this. Uh, this is... Matthew 16, Matthew 16, um, verse 16, says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, Christ meaning king, the son of the living God. Now, those are two different things, okay? They're, they're the same person, but those titles have two different references, and I'll get to the, the second part of that in a minute. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What he's saying is that you didn't just, you're not just smart. You're not just insightful. Um, God had to reveal that to you. It is the Father who, who has declared, announced, and, and made this not only be but known. And so he says, My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you, and I tell you, you're Peter. Peter means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So remember, they're at the gates of hell, where they're, that region, that it's, it's the imagery that's important here. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of the church to rescue people from damnation. Now, gates are defensive. Gates refer to a defense. So he's saying the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the assault of the church on its dominion. It means that you and I as Christians are not trying to defend ourselves against the attack of the enemy. Okay? We are the ones as believers who are on the attack to rescue people from the gates of hell. And, and honestly, I think this is something the church needs to understand a little bit better because I, I feel like a lot of times we're the ones feeling like, oh, I got to dodge and weave and defend myself and, and try to just survive and make it through and, and not get into trouble. And, and we need to get into trouble and we need to speak the truth and we need to do it boldly and we need to not be afraid and we need to be confident in the reality that we have a king who's provided peace in heaven and not necessarily peace on earth. So we're going to have some difficulty and turmoil. Some of those things we're going to put ourselves in because we're speaking the truth in a world that doesn't want to hear the truth, right? But the product of that is that some people will be rescued from hell, eternal separation, damnation, eternal fire that we can pull them out of a burning eternity and bring them into a peaceful relationship with their father. 
That's, that's what Jesus says will definitely happen. So he says a couple things here that are interesting. King, king is important. If you go back and you look at this announcement of Jesus being the king, um, you're going to find that it is precisely that message that Jesus is king. They're announcing, proclaiming it at the triumphal entry, that that is why, even though he turns over the tables and even though he yells at the Pharisees about their hypocrisy and all the rest of it, the reason they kill him is because he has declared war peacefully, but he's declared the fact that he's king. Here's what it says in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 27 says, the soldiers, after Jesus has been arrested, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. Remember, very symbolic, um, very, very prominent issue, the crown of thorns that Jesus wears at his crucifixion. Why did they do that? Because they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, kneeling before him. They mocked him. This is all ridicule, okay, before Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You said on Sunday, you're the king. All these people came around and declared that you're the king. So we're going to beat you up. We're going to put a crown of thorns on your head and pound it into your skull, Okay, they're going to dig in and blood's going to be running down your face and give you this little reed as a, as a scepter. King of the Jews are mocking him to his face. And then you look down at verse 37. It says, over his head, they put this charge against him. When he's on the cross, they made a plaque. They actually wrote it in three different languages so everybody could read it. Here's what it says. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Okay, so that's... The Roman government, Pilate, has done that um, in mockery of Jesus. Then, verse 42, as he's on the cross, here's what the Jewish scribes and elders, they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. King, king, king. They're all saying, declaring that Here's what you said about yourself. Here's what they all said about you. You're the king. That's why they persecuted him. That's why they killed him. Because they believed that he was declaring that he was king. They were right. He was right. Uh, they just didn't understand the concept of king of heaven. And so there's another issue here, though. He fulfills all these prophecies in, in the scripture about what the king must be and must do. He does all the miracles that, that were prophesied. Um, he uh, speaks the, the message. He, he gives the declaration of freedom from captivity. He is uh, genetically um, in line to King David. So the scripture said that it would be somebody from the tribe of Judah, and it would be somebody from the, the line of David. That was very specific and important. Um, and that this person would then have the right to inherit the, the kingship. So according to Luke, we see his biological genealogy traced back to King David. According to the Gospel of Matthew, when, when you and I get to genealogies, what do we do? We just pour over it and we read every detail and sound out every word. Or we're just like, I'm going to skip that part. 
But for the Jewish people, it was vitally important to record, to know exactly their genealogy. They had to have it in writing, and they had to have it recorded somewhere, secure and safe. Until 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, okay, during Jesus' lifetime, the records were all there. They were available. You could go back, and everybody could look and see exactly where they fit in the genealogy of the Jewish people what tribe they were from, what their family line was, how they traced back to David or to Abraham or wherever. According to Matthew, Jesus' legal representative was Joseph, his, what we say his stepfather, um, but he, he was his legal father, his legal representative. And so according to Matthew, Joseph traces his genealogy back to David as well. So he fulfills the prophecy, whether biologically or legally, he still fulfills that, that need or that right, that, that, that confirmation is there. But there's another issue, which is very interesting that we don't talk about too much. We know that Jesus is the only begotten son, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, right? And we say, well, yeah, he's the son of God. He was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, um, and, and that he's the son of God. That makes him divine in his, his nature, there's, that's important for us. But there's something else about the firstborn son or the only begotten son of God that we don't always think about, which is that there's a birthright. It's not only a kingly right to rule, because you can conquer a kingdom by force. You can have the, the rule by, by simple military might. But he also has to have the inherent right as a son to inherit the kingdom, a birthright. It's interesting. Well, you go back and, you, and so Peter says, you're the Christ and you're the son of, of the living God. There's a, there's a prophecy. It's kind of buried and it's not well known. It's the, the Ephraim prophecy. And here's how it works. I'm going to take you on a little road trip, okay? It won't be too long, but we'll, we'll have to go back a little ways. Go back to Abraham. God promises Abraham the promised land, right? The, the, the land of, of Israel, what he calls the land of milk and honey. But it's his inheritance. It is his birthright. God gives it to him. Abraham, as the father of the Jewish nation, has his birthright, and then he uh, then gives it to his son, but not his first son. Well, who's his first son? Ishmael, by his servant, servant girl. Um, whole story there. We won't get into it. But the son of promise was his wife, Sarah. They were both like 90 and 100 years old. They thought they were done. God had other plans. So they have Isaac. Isaac means laughter because at one point or other, they both laughed at the idea that in their old age that they were going to have a child. So his name is Isaac, and he, God gives him through Abraham the birthright. He's the son of, of the, the birthright. Now Isaac has a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. Right? And they're twins. Who's born first? Esau. So what happens, though, is kind of weird, is that Esau, um, it says in the Bible, he despised his birthright. He didn't really despise it. He sold it cheaply to his brother Jacob for a bowl of red soup. He, was, he thought he was starving to death and he, he wouldn't live anyway, so he sold his birthright to his, his, uh, his younger brother Jacob. And so Esau's name becomes Edom. His nickname is Edom. Edom means red because he sold his birthright for a bowl of red soup. The Edomites 
continue on as a, uh, a, a tribe or a nation that is in conflict with the Israelites for hundreds of years and maybe thousands of years. But the Edom sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob inherits the birthright. Um, Jacob has 12 sons, right? These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Something weird happens. Um, his oldest son, anybody know who his oldest son was? Reuben. So uh, he made a fantastic sandwich. But <laughs> other than that, um, Reuben kind of, uh, I don't know, he did something really gross. He slept with one of the stepmoms. Okay? So anyway, that whole thing. Um, and then God says, no, and, and uh, Jacob says, <laughs> uh, you lose your birthright. Um, and then um, Simeon and Levi, one of them should have inherited the birthright, but they do something violent. So their sister, um, Dinah, was it Dinah? Shout it out, Dinah. Yeah, okay, I, th I thought it was Dinah. Okay, she, the whole situation, okay, gets uh, crossways with the... Uh, somebody who wants to have relations with her, they're not married, and uh, so they get really mad. I actually, I think what they did was right, but that's just me. So they actually go in and they kill um, every man in that tribe that, uh, that had basically raped their sister. But Jacob is upset because he feels like he's going to get some repercussions from this, from the people around him. So he doesn't give them the birthright. He says they're violent, they're, their vengeance is just, it's, it's wrathful, it's too much, it's fierce, and so they get bypassed. So what happens is the birthright ends up going to Joseph. Joseph is the oldest son of, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. It's the one that he actually worked seven years for, that, that uh, Laban had tricked him and gave him Leah instead of Rachel, and then finally, you know, he gives him Rachel instead, and so Rachel couldn't have children for a long time. Finally, she can have children, and when she does, her first son is Joseph. Joseph inherits the birthright. So what happens is that finally, Joseph sold into Egypt. He's a slave there, but he becomes prominent. They all come, uh, the whole family, all the 12 tribes, all the 12 families, they come down to Egypt, um, and Jacob is on his deathbed, basically. He's getting old. Um, and so he transfers the birthright, not just to uh, Joseph, but Joseph has two sons in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim, right? You follow me? And here's what's hap what happens. There's no tribe of Joseph in Israel. There's no tribe of Joseph. That tribe is split into two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Who's older? Manasseh's older. So Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, for Jacob to bless. And what Jacob does, he crosses his hands. And he gives the birthright to Ephraim instead of Manasseh. And, and Joseph, even though he's like 11th born, he's like, no, 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 I want the oldest. And he says, no, this is what God has ordained. Ephraim's going to receive the birthright. You say, oh, that's interesting. Now, from Abraham all the way down to Ephraim, here's we, what we have. Ephraim retains the birthright of, of Abraham, the inheritance of Israel. Fast forward about 400 years or so, and uh, Moses delivers the uh, Jewish people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt and through to Mount Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments, into the wilderness, 40 years. 
finally, Moses dies on Mount Nebo, which is in modern-day Jordan. Uh, he doesn't get to enter the Promised Land. Who takes the Jewish people, the Israelites, into the Promised Land, the inheritance that had been promised to Abraham all the way down through and the, per- the birthright? Who, d- who delivers them? Joshua. Joshua delivers them. He, he gives the Israelite people the, the inheritance, the birthright. Joshua, guess what tribe he's from? It's not a trick question. Ephraim. Joshua, son of Nun, is of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, here's something else that's interesting. Joshua, if you were to pronounce it in Hebrew, it'd be Yeshua. Yeshua in Greek is, guess what? Jesus. In fact, when you talk to Messianic Jewish people, they don't call Jesus Jesus like we do. They call him Yeshua or Joshua. And here's what we see, the reality of this being played out, is that Jesus is the rightful heir. He has the birthright of heaven. And he offers that to you and to me as sons, daughters, children with God, brothers and sisters with him. He has the, he has the prophetic um, confirmation, validation. He has fulfilled all the elements, every element that you can possibly think of. You walk through the Old Testament, and you and I don't always see the connections. We're, we're kind of muddled through some of these things. Jesus fulfills everything from Genesis through Malachi, fulfills it all. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the son of David. He is the, the Savior, as we understand it. In every sense that there's a Savior in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills it. He is the prophet Elijah fulfilled. He is, he is the prophet Elisha fulfilled. He is the prophet Moses fulfilled. He is, he is the only begotten son who is like Joshua, who's going to give the inheritance of the promised land to his people. Every aspect of king, every aspect of of son, every aspect of God, every aspect of Lord, every aspect of Savior, he's all those things. And what we do as Christians is we simply recognize the eternal and absolute nature of Jesus to be worthy of all these titles. That's all we do. We don't make it so. It's not because we're arguing it for, for it to be so. It is so. And we simply have been given by the grace of God, the understanding, the recognition that this is true. And that provides and produces salvation. And then we're saved by God. We're saved from sin and death. And we're saved for a purpose. And the, and the purpose that God saved us for is to be his heralds or witnesses or proclaimers of, of who he is. We just simply declare it. I, you know, I get to um, stand here and declare these things and proclaim them from God's word. It's a wonderful, special privilege, but every single Christian person who has received salvation in the name of Jesus has the same opportunity every day that you live, every place that you go, every person that you influence is an opportunity to influence them in the sense of saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, He's my Savior. 
He's not just my Savior. He's the Savior. He can be your Savior. We invite you to come hear about that in church. We invite you to pray a prayer. We invite you to know more about that. You know, everywhere that we go, this is our awesome privilege. Not only do I get to receive it, I get to proclaim it. And every Sunday we get to celebrate it. And next Sunday, we're going to celebrate perhaps the most awesome part of it. The defeat of death itself. The thing that every single person will have to deal with, every single person fears to a degree, we see the victory of Jesus over that, and he says, I'm offering that to you as well. Amen? Lord, we thank you. God, it's, a, it's an awesome thing to know you, to be known by you, to get to have a relationship with you, to have peace in heaven. Lord, we, we know, no matter we're, whether you're Christian or not, or Buddhist or Hindu or is, is Islamic or anything else, there's no peace on this earth. There's no, no promise of comfort and safety and prosperity. There's, um, we have moments where we do feel that way. We're thankful for that. But there's no guarantee of it lasting. There's no guarantee of it, of it perpetuating. It, it's, it's, this world is, is troubled. But we thank you, Lord, that we have peace in heaven. And, and not even just peace in heaven. Lord, we have... We have a guarantee of being glorified. We have a guarantee of being um, inheritors of all that you have, all that is good, all that is wonderful, all that is glorious, Lord. You have, you have declared that it is ours. By faith, Lord, we receive that. Uh, it's, it's amazing to think that you will one day usher us into heavenly places and say, this is yours. Come and enjoy your master's rest. And Lord, I, I, I praise you for that. I thank you for that. In the meantime, we have work to do. Help us, Lord, we pray to do that. Help us to declare the truth, not be fearful. Um, never let rejection or intimidation or anything else keep us from proclaiming the truth that you are king. And Lord, we pray that as we do, you'll reach more people, assaulting the gates, rescuing people from the, the, the jaws of hell and death. Lord, help us to join you in that. For your glory, for our sake, for the world's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to respond however the Lord's calling you to respond. There's always two things that have to be kept in, in balance. One is there are people that don't know Jesus and they need to receive him this morning. That for whatever reason, there's never been an intentional um, reception, receiving faithful belief that Jesus is Lord in their life. Never been a repentance. There's never been a a saving knowledge or whatever you want to call it. And for those that need to, to receive Jesus this morning, we just invite you to do that. You don't have to come to the altar to do that. You can do it where you're sitting. You can do it at home. But we do urge you not to wait because you don't know the day or the hour. 
So we, we invite you to receive the love that God has for you and the forgiveness and the change of heart that he desires to, to offer to you. The other thing is that as believers, um, we oftentimes need a restart just to get on God's page. And maybe you've been off his page and you know you've been off his page and you need to get back on his page. Sometimes just coming to the altar and saying, God, I'm wherever I've been, I'm sorry, I want to get back where you want me. And let him do what he wants to do in that moment. Amen? Let's stand and sing.